In episode 93, iOS 14.4 brings with it rail display bugs. We tell you what you need to know. More on laptops you like? Are AirPods Max worth a dollar, dollar, dollar? Continuing problems with Uber refusals of guide dogs and much more. Welcome, thank you so much for joining me. I do appreciate it. And we begin once again today with something that has become all too common over the years. Apple has yet again tarnished all the good that it does in accessibility by releasing another operating system with significant accessibility bugs. And this time it couldn't rate more highly on the irony meter. January is Braille Literacy Month and the significant new voiceover bugs are Braille related. We have comprehensive coverage of this on Mosin at Large today. First, let's detail what we know about the regression. APH has issued a very helpful post on its blog, and the statement reads as follows. There are connection issues for the Mantis and Chameleon after upgrading to iOS 14.4. We recommend that you turn off automatic updates and do not upgrade to 14.4 until a resolution has been found. This is a regression introduced by Apple in this release. We alerted them to this issue in 14.4 beta testing, and we hope they will correct it in a possible 14.4.1 release. We'll keep you posted on anything that we learn. And the statement continues, what's happening? The basic issue is that once you upgrade to 14.4, as soon as you lock your iPad or iPhone with the Mantis or Chameleon connected, the Braille display will not automatically reconnect once you wake the device back up. You can force it to reconnect by leaving the terminal and reconnecting from there, but then you won't get Braille. The only way to get Bluetooth back is to toggle Bluetooth on the iOS device, but the issue will happen again as soon as you lock your device or it goes to sleep. Another way that this issue can manifest is if you don't lose your connection, but use the display to wake up the iOS device You can successfully wake it up and regain your connection, but you will stop receiving Braille. Regardless of how the issue appears, it is best to avoid it altogether by not upgrading to 14.4. What you can do. APH says to stop an iOS device from auto-updating, do the following. Open the Settings app. Activate the General option. Activate the Software Update option. Activate the Automatic Updates option. Turn off both Download iOS Updates and Install iOS Updates. If you've already updated, please refer to this link, and there is a link provided on the APH blog post, for instructions on how to downgrade your iOS device. Note that downgrading is a complicated and time-consuming process. You'll want to back up your data before downgrading, as the process will wipe everything. That's the statement in part from APH. Let's first take a look at who this is affecting. I can confirm the issue with the Mantis, and I have more to say about this soon. I also have access to a Focus 40 Blue Braille display from Freedom Scientific, and I am not seeing the issue there. We also have an email from Mickey Quenza, and this is one of the cool things about Mosin at Large, is that with such a large audience, we can crowdsource these things. Now, Mickey Quenza says, hello, Jonathan, just wanted to let you know that I am having a problem with my Braille display since I updated to the latest iOS. 
I am using a 20-cell Braille display made by Humanware, which is in beta with the NLS Talking Book program in Kentucky. I was most disappointed when I updated to find out that this update makes the Braille display unusable if you lock your iPhone. The only way to resolve this problem that I know of is to reboot the NLS reader. Any other solutions would be very much appreciated. I hope we can find an organized way to approach these kinds of problems that Apple seems to be ignoring. I am angry and disappointed with Apple because I just bought an iPhone 12 Pro Max and did my first update to the iPhone 12 and made my NLS e-reader unusable with my iPhone 12 Pro Max. So we know that this is affecting the humanware product that is currently in beta for NLS, which is very similar to the new Brilliant Braille displays. And we'll talk more about that a little bit later in this show. But when I use my Focus 40 Blue Braille display with iOS 14.4, I can lock and unlock my iPhone to my heart's content and everything is working just fine. So it's a bit of a deduction on my part, but what this suggests to me is that this particular issue with Braille displays not waking up after an unlock of the iPhone screen are those that are using the new HID protocol. And if you go back into my review of the Mantis Braille display from last year, from memory, I think the episode number is 82. I did make the comment that I thought that Apple needed to do quite a bit of work on their HID implementation because their Braille display user interface is really geared to the idea that you are using Braille input keys. It doesn't seem to be geared to assigning Braille functions to QWERTY commands. And obviously, there's some work that needs doing on HID in general if Braille input devices are also experiencing some of these issues. So perhaps some of that work was beginning in 14.4 and bugs have been introduced. What worries me about this, though, is that we have seen other Braille display manufacturers experience similar issues. I think there was a period for a while where some HIMS displays were having issues with iOS. And of course, poor old HIMS couldn't really do much about it except for lobby Apple, because it is Apple that creates the drivers and puts them into the operating system. I know there was a period where Freedom Scientific focused Braille displays were having issues with iOS, and they actually had to publish a very similar blog post to the APH one where they had to tell people how to downgrade and you know you're at Apple's mercy so we don't know how long it might be before this is fixed which is why I think a bit of constructive advocacy is important but I want to come back to the APH blog post for a bit first I congratulate them on making it very clear that they did alert Apple during the beta testing process to these problems Second, I would stress that if the Braille issues that we're talking about today bother you, you need to downgrade immediately because Apple may soon stop signing the previous release of iOS and that'll prevent you from doing so. You will be stuck on 14.4 at that point. Third, as you make your decision about this, I would point out that iOS 14.4 fixes a serious security vulnerability that's being actively exploited by bad dudes. Slight though the chances may be, if you downgrade, you are making yourself vulnerable to that security exploit. In New Zealand, for example, where I'm from, the government's cyber emergency response team is urging iOS users to upgrade to 14.4 immediately. Being diplomatic about it, it is extremely unfortunate 
that Apple is forcing blind people to choose between safety and maximum accessibility. So before you downgrade, I would like to talk about a solution that sometimes does work for me that's not covered in that APH article. I try and keep my screen unlocked all the time anyway. I have the auto locking turned off and most of the day I leave my screen unlocked. I've got my brightness set to zero and the screen curtain on and I find I still get very good battery life leaving the screen unlocked and having the phone on my desk all day. But if I've locked my phone for whatever reason and I unlock it, it's absolutely the case that Braille doesn't come back. I have found probably, I would say, six or seven times out of ten that if I immediately toggle VoiceOver off with a triple tap of the side button and then toggle it back on again, the Braille does come back. Not 100% of the time, but a lot of the time. So if you're stuck on 14.4 now and you feel you don't have the tech savvy or the time, because it is time-consuming to downgrade, that may be one thing that you can try. And with that fix in mind, the problem is annoying but tolerable until there's a fix. But that, unfortunately, isn't the extent of the problems for Braille users with iOS 14.4. There are significant focus issues as well. As regular listeners will know, I use Ulysses a lot to produce documents on my iPhone. With this release, whenever I receive a push notification from any app while I'm reading a document in Ulysses in Braille... Focus jumps to the top of the document, and I've lost my place. It makes being productive very difficult with iOS now. Also, we have this email from Ian Lackey. He says, hello, Jonathan, I am annoyed. Earlier this week, I updated to the latest version of iOS. I wish I hadn't. I like to read Kindle books using my Braille display, and before updating, doing this was a joy. Now, it is all but impossible. The problem I'm having is that when the page changes, the Braille display seems to land at the page end and panning skips to the top of the next page. Yes, I can read with speech, but using Braille I find to be a more engaging experience. The situation is only slightly better using Apple Books using my phone. The page skips, but I seem not always to be placed at the top of the page. I tried using Apple Books with my iPad, but with a purchased book, I found myself being thrown on to the status line when reading. If anyone is thinking about updating and uses Kindle or Apple Books with a Braille display, I would advise caution. Wait until either the Kindle app is updated or iOS is updated. Thank you for drawing this to our attention, Ian. I hadn't read any Kindle or Apple books since upgrading to 14.4, but I can confirm this, and this one applies to my Focus 40 Blue Brow display and my Mantis, and I think it is related to the focus issues that I just talked about, which are also not Mantis or head display specific. So I think this one is probably affecting all of us. And it's really unfortunate. It makes reading a Kindle book with Braille impossible. And when I tried it with Apple Books, my results were mixed like yours, Ian. I found that often when I scrolled to the next page, I was put way at the top of the screen and had to scroll back down to the area where the book content is. Now, I looked for a workaround here, and my first thought was, what happens if I go into Braille settings under Accessibility VoiceOver And there's an auto panning option, which is on. I toggled it off, exited voiceover. 
went in and toggled it back on again and read the Kindle book and Apple book again, and I have exactly the same suboptimal experience. So I have not found a workaround to this one other than the all drastic downgrade from 14.4 before Apple makes that impossible. If you do a lot of reading of Kindle and Apple books from your Braille display, you really will want to be aware of this horrible regression. Next, we have an email from someone. I do apologize. I can't identify. There are non-English characters that I'm unable to read. So my sincere apologies for not being able to acknowledge you. But the email is important. It says, hi, Jonathan. I have the Polaris Braille display and iPhone that is running iOS 14.4. I can't write Braille in Hebrew using the Liblui Braille tables. I need to use the system Braille table, which is worse in Hebrew. In addition, my Braille display causes voiceover to crash when I open the accessibility settings, my iPhone in the Hebrew language, and it's happening in Hebrew interface. This is annoying me. Why is it taking many times to fix this? I am very disappointed with Apple. Hi, Jonathan. Kylie Maloney here. My chief concern with this latest update 14.4 is not so much the inconvenience of not being able to use my Mantis because the problem seems to be only with the latest APH products, but the fact that this update is also there to patch a security vulnerability. It's bad enough that we have to choose between Braille access and not Braille access on our preferred devices. Those of us who indeed have a choice, and I'm aware that there are people out there who are deafblind who won't have the choice at all if they use a mantis or a, a chameleon, but that we're being asked to choose between that and security in this case. And for the first time, I was motivated to write to Apple to tell them what I thought of their decision. Now, I'm aware, as much as anyone else is, that you can rush out a patch and you need to do that sometimes when a security hole presents itself. But really, do groups of customers really have to be reminded how unimportant they are? Do they really? What's on your mind? Send an email with a recording of your voice or just write it down. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. Or phone our listener line. The number in the United States is 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-60-66736. It's the mighty Quinn. We go to Iowa and Pam Quinn writes, Hi, Jonathan. I'm very much looking forward to your review of the Brilliant BI-20X. The NLS e-readers are in testing phase in Iowa right now, and I have one of those. From what I understand, the one that I have, which was manufactured by Humanware, is physically identical to the Brilliant BI-20X. The NLS e-reader, with its crisp Braille display, is absolutely awesome, and the 20-cell is perfect for me. I love how when, in its case, it looks just like a small hardcover book that you can throw in your purse or whatever. 
The advantages of the BI-20X, of course, would be the addition of Bookshare and Newsline and the ability to create files. I've heard that eventually text-to-speech might be included as well. I wonder which speech it would be, as I prefer the synthesized as opposed to the more human-sounding speech. That would be great if it happened to be eloquence, although not holding my breath on that one. Having the e-reader, it would be hard to justify the expense of the BI-20X at this point, although there are just some times when I want it all. Is this display also the same as the chameleon? Thank you, Pam. No, I don't think so. I think there are differences between the chameleon and the Bradient, and that those differences may get bigger over time. And you, yes, you, will be able to hear a comprehensive review of the Bradient BI-20X, as well as an interview with a couple of the team from Humanware, in the next episode of Mosin at Large, which is due to be published on Wednesday, US time, mid-afternoon. That'll be episode 94, and if you're interested in the Braille display market, you will not want to miss this exciting new offering in the market. Zachary Morris says, I'm glad you have good luck with Dell's products. Maybe it's just me, but I've had pretty bad experiences. Their technical support is bad. When I called them about a battery and AC adapter issue, I had to tell them I was blind. It was exactly the same as you discussed. I've had to deal with them several times. The only good experience I have had with them is they completely replaced everything for $120. This Dell, since then, has been running fine, but last year I switched to a MacBook Air, which now I get to deal with Apple's amazing accessibility support. Yeah, and to be fair, Zachary, I haven't tried Dell's tech support yet, and I get a feeling a lot of these companies will be very similar. You know, as long as everything's working, it's all peachy, peachy. And the test, of course, is when things don't go well, and this is where often you have a really good experience with Apple. Another question, says Zachary, I own a Q-Braille XL. On Apple devices, the hybrid layout absolutely flops. On both the iPhone and Mac, for example, the control key is being recognized as F3. The actual F2 key is recognized as B, etc. How should I fix this? Ooh, that does sound dodgy. Well, I would imagine the first step would be to contact Hims Tech Support and ask if this is typical. If it is, then it could be one of those issues where Apple may have an issue with their Braille display driver and that only Apple will be able to fix this by updating the driver. But in the first instance, I would just check with Hims to see if this is a known issue, but perhaps others with a Cubate XL can comment. Hello, Jonathan. It's Thomas Upton. As for laptops, well, I have a working Dell Inspiron, or Inspiron, depending on how you say it, which it's a very good laptop. It features a great keyboard and a great mouse and even from what i've learned you can actually turn the laptop mouse off you know the 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 touchpad like in case if you don't want to use the mouse at all and from what i'm surprised about because it's a dell laptop whenever you plug in headphones on this dell laptop it would bring up this surprising max audio 3.0 whatever dialogue and from what I found out, when that dialogue comes up, you have to alt-tab there and press the escape key. So for those of you who want to 
put on headphones with your Dell laptop. Just wait until that max audio dialog comes up. I'll tap to it, press escape, and your sound will finally flop from the speakers to the headphones on your Dell laptop. Thanks, Thomas. That's certainly a way of doing it if you are going to use other types of devices with that jack because it is a multi-purpose jack. I'm never going to insert any kind of microphone into that jack, and I suspect in this era of USB mics, many other people aren't either. So you can configure the default for what happens when you plug in a set of headphones, and it will automatically turn the speakers off and switch to headphones without the need for that dialogue coming up. It's configurable, but for memory, it may not be accessible. That may have been one of the tasks that I used Ira to get done. Once it's done, you've set it and forgotten it, which is much better than having to worry about that dialogue. Marvin Hunkin is writing in from Australia. He says, I recommend one I am using, which is great. We're talking laptops, of course. Asus VivoBook X540UAR. Great surround sound using the Realtek surround sound. Two speakers, 15.6-inch screen. Numlock is top right of the keyboard. A nice, sturdy keyboard. It weighs about 2.5 or 1.8 kilograms. That's actually quite a big difference there. Um, Comes with built-in camera, microphone. Now we get to specs. Intel i7 III 2.3 as dual or quad processor. Up to 6 to 8 cores, 8 gigabytes of RAM with a spare 8 gigabyte RAM slot to upgrade to 16 gigabytes of RAM. A solid state drive, 512 gigabytes, 1 USB 3, 2 USB 2 ports. You get about 7 hours of battery out of it. It comes with the Asus Live Update app, which is accessible with JAWS, NVDA, and Windows Narrator. It comes with Windows 10 Home, 64-bit. It's a great laptop. It's my first time using a solid-state drive and very quick booting up and very responsive. Hello, Jonathan. Happy New Year and Happy New Decade. This is Thomas Solich from Ohio, and I was particularly appreciative of your discussion regarding your new Dell. Congratulations. I really enjoyed being a part of the Dell family since 2003. And I wanted to let you know that I agree with your strategy that many of those Dell proprietary apps, the Dell app that connects with your phone, as well as some of the apps that keep things Maintained as well as the audio and the power apps are largely inaccessible. And now that you are in the Dell Club, and some of our other listeners undoubtedly will uh, commiserate with us, I think it's time to launch a concerted effort and get with Dell and see if we can't identify somebody who can take an interest in making these items accessible. I mean, it, it would be very simple them to develop some scripts or uh, have some buttons labeled. I mean, it's the Windows infrastructure, and especially for JAWS users and other screen reader users, it would be nothing for them to do this. So just wanted to say that you have my full support. I'm going to keep an ear to the ground for more comments from you in terms of your uh, new Dell uh, XPS machine. Congratulations on it. I'm really happy to hear that the sound 
uh, is superior to the business latitudes that I've been using since 2003 because sound is definitely uh, a reason to go to Mac, but I've resisted. I love my iPhone 12 Pro Max, but I also love my Dell. So thank you very much for your incredible podcast. So glad to have you back after the break. And I'll be listening for more of your Dell tidbits. And let's get with these guys and get this fixed. Jonathan Mosen, Mosen at Large Podcast. Herbie is writing in on laptop keyboards and says, hello, Jonathan and everyone. As someone who has been frustrated with laptop keyboards on both Windows and Mac, I find that using an external keyboard for me is the best solution. I really love the Apple Magic Keyboard as it gives me the option of using it via USB when I do not want lag or Bluetooth when I'm elsewhere in the room but still need to access the computer. It comes in two different sizes depending on if you want a numpad or not. While it may seem strange to use an external keyboard for a laptop, it is my only computer and I mostly use it in the apartment or at my university where I have access to a table. My older HP machine gave me grief since I could not turn off the trackpad. I would constantly bump it, causing me to lose screen focus. Not to mention, it got cumbersome for me using an extra function key for various things like checking time or accessing the system tray. My Mac has the butterfly keyboard and the touch bar, and while usable on the Mac... Not the case when using Windows on Boot Camp. Speaking of Mac, another great resource for learning how to use the Mac is an organization called iBug Today. I've seen them retweeting some of the Mosin at Large posts, actually. And uh, Herbie gives the URL. It's iBug, I-B-U-G, today.org. One of the programs they offer is Macintalk, where you can call in the fourth Tuesday of every month on Zoom at 7 p.m. Central Time to discuss the Mac and ask questions. There is also an email list you can subscribe to by emailing ibug-macintalk. Macintalk is about M-A-C-N-T-A-L-K. So ibug-macintalk plus subscribe at groups.io for further discussion outside the call. iBug also offers other calls for iOS, Android, etc. Anyway, I enjoy the show as always and hope this information is helpful to you and everyone. Thanks, Herbie. Just regarding that comment about the keyboard that you had on the HP device, I have not yet seen any computer that doesn't offer you the option in some form to toggle off the need to press the FN key to get the regular function keys. Sometimes it's hidden in a utility. Sometimes you have to maybe double tap the function key or tap the function key with something. And on rare occasions, you do have to get a sighted person to help and go into the BIOS where the option can be found sometimes in the BIOS. But usually there is the option to make the function keys behave as function keys And then you have to tap the FN key to get to the other system functions. This is because there are still a lot of keyboard pros who want the function keys to act as the regular function keys. The trackpad can be an issue. On the Dell XPS 15, which has a huge, huge trackpad, I'm pleased to say you can just type touchpad into the start menu 
and you get a little utility where you can just toggle the touchpad completely off, which I do most of the time. And then somebody like Heidi will come over and want to use the computer for something. And she complains that the touchpad's off and I have to remember to turn it back on. For all things Mosin at large, check out the website where you can listen to episodes online, subscribe using your favourite podcast app and contact the show. Just point your browser to podcast.mosen.org. That's podcast.mosen.org. Hello, Jonathan. Happy New Year. First of all, tech support with mainstream companies, I think is not very good when you're a person who is blind. I could almost read the script that you were talking about, uh, the things you were saying, for example, can you see the lights on the modem? And I don't know why they have to apologize for you being blind. It's sort of, uh, they feel sorry for you, which is interesting. But I do agree that from my experience, you have to be polite and firm and always keep a cool head. But if Microsoft, Apple and Google can have a dedicated desk for disability and asset, you know, mainstream technology questions regarding built-in screen access technology, certainly HP can do it. The other thing I wanted to comment on is a long-running theme of your couple of episodes. There's been a lot of talk about Braille displays. I love Braille. I've been using it since I was five years old. And I have quite a range of products, ranging from the Focus 40 Blue, 5th Gen, to the L Braille, and also the Braille Sense Polaris. But I think the most intriguing product is the Mantis Q40. And thank you very much, by the way, for such a wonderful review of that product. I'm definitely looking forward to getting one. And I've been looking for something like this for a long time. I can do the braille cords and have used it with my L braille but certainly it was a learning curve it takes a bit of muscle memory you have to do it a number of times before you can get the hang of it but something like this that I can use with my PC and just control everything from the one keyboard on using JAWS and still have access to crisp 40 cells of braille I think this is a game changer, as is the new Brilliant from Humanware as well. So there are lots of exciting things happening. And I think, whilst I still like my Braille since Polaris, I think note takers are being left behind uh, when there are devices like the Mantis Q40 and even the new Brilliant, which has, you know, it, the trend seems to be standalone displays with a bit of smarts built in, a few other, a few extras which is fantastic. And in Australia, the Mantis is $4,045, which is perfect. It's still, it's still expensive, but nowhere near, you know, what a Polaris or other, other note takers that run Android command. Finally, I want to comment on episode 91, talking about the Dell XPS 15 2020 version. I have the same laptop. It's a fantastic laptop. The sound is unbelievable. I don't run any audio editing applications or sometimes sometimes I do use Goldwave from time to time, but 
definitely I don't run a podcast and I don't put it through its paces like you would for running most larger audio production. But I do take online classes and for general navigation. I think out of all the laptops that I've got, it's my favorite machine, even trumping the M1 MacBook Pro, which I use. But I think out of all my PCs, that's my favorite laptop. And I do run Dell exclusively. I've never purchased a HP product. I think the last HP product was 2008. So I love Dell, particularly the XPS range. And the XPX 15 is a fantastic machine. Thanks, Saddam. That's Saddam in Australia. I'm really digging my Dell XPS 15. It is a lovely laptop. And I do agree. For me, it just suits my needs down to the ground. Everybody's needs differ, of course, but this is ticking the boxes for me right now. I have considerable sympathy for the notes taker developers and they do still play a really important role in the education market and they play a role for those who just don't feel comfortable using iPhones or computers to get a lot of day-to-day tasks done. And as long as that's the case, then I guess there will be a market for note takers, expensive though they may be. And of course, people do lament the costs of note takers. Having managed two of the leading note takers in their time, it is a real challenge because obviously you don't feel good about pricing something out of the market. You get these cynical people who think, oh, these terrible gouging profit-making assistive technology companies. The question you've got to ask yourself, of course, is, If it was so easy to come in and do a really high-class note-taker product for a cheaper cost, why hasn't someone come in and swept the market clean? The reason is it's not possible. You've got to employ a lot of engineers to keep up with what's going on. And this was the big challenge, particularly when I was running the Brownnote product line at Pulse Data, Lassily Humanware, many years ago now. When you had that proprietary Keysoft environment, there was no software development kit. So third parties couldn't develop software for it. And it was quite difficult for me to get any traction. And I felt sad about that because one of the things I thought that the Blazy products did really well was the fact that developers could write little games and utilities. And there was quite a nice little ecosystem. And it occurred to me that if you had a much more capable product like the Braille Note and you opened it up, Who knows what might have been able to happen there in those early days. But as it was, you know, people loved the Brownote and they clamored for more and more. If they wanted a web browser, which the Brownote didn't have in those initial days, well, it was up to Pulse Data to develop that browser. That was a huge engineering task. And when you have a very small market, like the Braille reading blindness market, you've got to spread the costs of those developments over a very small number of units. And then, of course, there's the piezoelectric brow technology. There are various things that genuinely does put the price up. And you can't sell these things at a loss because, gosh, we have seen a number of assistive technology companies go out of business over the years, haven't we? Because they didn't price their products appropriately to remain profitable. Profit is not a dirty word. If you don't make profit... You can't pay people. You can't keep the lights on. The products go away. And of course, in an era where technology developments are so rapid, yes, I agree with you, Saddam, it really is tough for those note-taker manufacturers. And yet people still do want them. 
I guess they may just have to accept that if you go the note-taker route, you may be behind the eight ball quite considerably because it is harder and harder to keep up. APIs are helping. Going with a mainstream operating system like Android helps to some degree, but it is still a really difficult ask. There are so many competing and, I guess you would say, incompatible imperatives to consider. The cost, trying to keep it down, keeping current, and keeping it reliable, which is so important when unemployment is such an issue for our community. And when you do get a job, it is just so demoralizing to be let down by unreliable assistive technology. Hello, this is Abby Taylor in Sheridan, Wyoming. I have a couple of things I would like to talk about this time. First of all, I have subscribed to Microsoft 365 for a couple of years now, and I have so far been happy with it until recently when Outlook started giving me problems. It was slow. Sometimes it wouldn't open at all. I had to do several things to get to open, and then it would be slow to receive and send messages. Um, I did consult my techie guy, who I recommend to anybody who needs assistance with assistive technology, and his name is Casey Matthews. He has a, an outfit, a business called Web Friendly Help, and you can check him out at webfriendlyhelp.com. That's W-E-B-F-R-I-E-N-D-L-Y-H-E-L-P dot C-O-M. And he worked with me remote into my computer and we worked on Outlook and he could not, you know, he, you know, did some things and it worked a bit better, but it still has a problem now with where it's very slow in sending and receiving messages. And sometimes after I've been working on a message for a while and I try to send it, it says it can't be sent because the message was changed. And the only way to work around that is to copy and paste that message into a new message and so on and send it that way. So I've switched to Windows 10 Mail and um, I like it. There are some parts of it that aren't accessible, like the signature. They're not as easy to, to use, but it's doable. So for right now, I'm using Windows 10 Mail. I still use Word, but I'm torn between keeping my subscription to, to Microsoft 365 and discontinuing and discontinu or discontinuing it and just finding or just downloading or purchasing Word. Uh, because I still like using Word. It works well with JAWS and so I want to keep using it. So but that's my experience with with Microsoft 365. Now maybe once they've improved it like uh Jonathan said, maybe Outlook will work better. I don't know. So I'm not quite sure what to do. I may consult Casey again and see what he thinks. Now, the other thing, I listened to the uh, demo of the Revo 2 key keyboard and am impressed with it. However, the gentleman from India who reviewed it did not spell the product and did not provide a link to a website where he said so-called documentation for the product could be found. I did some Googling and found the Revo site, but it had no documentation that I could find. I emailed them and I'm waiting to hear back from them. But I would like to suggest that in the future, if you review a product, please provide a link 
to where, you know, to, to say where it can, you know, a link to where it can be found, like I did a little bit ago with Web Friendly Health, just spell out the name. Thanks, Abby, and I can see that would be very helpful. Although I would point out that the Revo is spelled out in the show notes, which any good podcast client will give you access to, and you can go through and have a look at the show notes there and find out how these things are spelt. But it's a point well made. The website to get the documentation, which is really comprehensive, is revo.me. That's R-I-V-O dot me. And you can go there and look at all the information you could possibly hope for on the Revo 2 keyboard. Regarding your problems with Microsoft Outlook, I certainly wouldn't want to forsake Outlook in favor of Windows 10 Mail. It's just a lot more fully featured using Outlook. And so if you are missing it, one thing I would recommend is contacting Microsoft's Disability Answer Desk. We've been talking on the show here about mainstream companies that don't do well supporting blind people. Microsoft's Disability Answer Desk is fantastic. It was set up by Kelly Ford, who is a blind person himself, And everybody that you talk to on the Disability Answer Desk has training in how to work with screen reader users. As I mentioned when we discussed tech support, I don't often need it, but when I do, it's normally a complex problem. The Microsoft team are fantastic. They will log on to your computer. They often have access to articles that can assist with these things, to little patches that they can apply, all sorts of hacks, that kind of thing. And normally, Microsoft's Disability Answer Desk has come through for me. So if you've got some issues where your Microsoft Outlook is corrupted, I suspect they will take you through a full repair in the first instance, but there may be certain things that can be done to rectify your Outlook situation. So do give them a try. And if you do, do get back in touch with us and let us know if they came through for you. Be My Eyes is also another venue that you can get the Microsoft Disability Answer Desk. So they do have toll-free numbers in many countries, but you can just go right into Be My Eyes and choose the Disability Answer Desk and talk to them that way. And one of the benefits of that is the audio quality. It sounds good to talk to the Disability Answer Desk that way. So I hope that helps. Hello, Jonathan, says Joyce Feinberg. I hope you had a relaxing and refreshing summer vacation. I have two questions now that you are back. The first question concerns Castro. I have been enjoying this app to listen to podcasts for a while. Shortly after upgrading my iPad to OS 14.3, Castro discontinued working. I have the paid version, and it will not play or delete podcasts from the inbox or queue tabs. It also will not change to the selected tab easily. I have deleted the app and its backups, but the same issues occur when I try to subscribe to a podcast. I've had to revert back to Overcast in order to listen to podcasts. Have you had any issues with this app? Joyce, I haven't, but I would say that the iPad is not officially supported by Castro. So maybe something that's happened to iPadOS has made whatever fluke you managed to pull off to have it work in the iPad not work anymore. If you are having the same issues with an iPhone, then it sounds like there's an issue with the app. Now, Castro have said repeatedly that an iPad version is coming and that when Castro officially supports the iPad, it's going to be a stunner. But it may be that you'll have to stick with Overcast until the official Castro iPad OS version comes out. Of course, you can check with Castro for the definitive word on all of that. Just before I get on to Joyce's second unrelated question, 
while we are talking about Castro, just before Christmas, they came out with a fantastic update that has a lot of accessibility changes in it. And it's great that Castro have been so responsive to feedback. I've talked to them a bit about some of the things that they could do, and some of those things have ended up in this update. And it just makes what, in my view, is the best podcast app for iPhone even better. So let's just summarize briefly some of the changes that they have made. It's a little thing, but it makes a big efficiency difference. The episode title is now listed first. When you go through your inbox which is at the heart of Castro's model, the idea that it's kind of email-like and you get all your podcasts in the inbox and you can triage them from there. Now, the name of the episode is first before the source of the episode. Because often, if you particularly subscribe to a lot of news podcasts, for example, what you're really interested in is the headline. And if you have to sit through the name of the source of the podcast first before you know what the episode's about, that just slows you down. So a great efficiency improvement from Castro there. Also, if you go into a specific podcast, so you go into the library in Castro and you choose a podcast and you browse through the episodes, now the episode name isn't spoken at all because you know that you're in that particular podcast, so you don't need the episode name spoken. There are actions rotor improvements throughout Castro. On the queue now, you can move items up and down the queue. So drag and drop is still available to you, and that's very effective and accessible. But you can also move episodes up and down the queue. And also, when you're in the library and browsing through your list of podcasts, you can unsubscribe from a podcast right from the actions rotor in the library. I used to get quite a few emails coming in from people saying, how do you unsubscribe from a podcast in Castro? Now it's really easy. It's right there on the actions rotor. Some previously unlabeled buttons, particularly in the discover section, have now been labeled. So the accessibility work continues. Do check out Castro for your podcasts in the app store if you haven't done so already. And you can go all the way back to about this time last year in the Mosin at Large archives and hear a review of Castro as it was then and why even then, before all the amazing Siri shortcut stuff that they've integrated and these accessibility changes, why I feel like it's the best podcast app for iOS by a long way. Now, the second question from Joyce says, the second question concerns trying to digitize my audio cassette tapes. I have a number of audio cassette tapes that I would like to convert to digital before they deteriorate too much. I have a cassette player that I can connect to my computer and a copy of Reaper, which will record in stereo. The main problem is that I do not know the best settings to use and how to split the large recording into its individual tracks. I started working with someone within the RWP group but he got involved with other projects and did not know the best way to assist me with my project. Do you know of anyone who can provide assistance with this project? Joyce, I would imagine just going back to the RWP list and sending an email to that group as a whole. There could be people who are willing to do it for a fee or give you some guidance for a fee or even volunteer their expertise. I've not yet had cause to digitize cassettes with Reaper. But when I did this with SoundForge many moons ago, I know there was a feature in SoundForge that used to use silence detection to create regions. And there is normally a good gap, a couple of seconds gap on a cassette between tracks. If you set that up, assuming it is available in Reaper, 
and create regions for each track. You should then be able to render each region separately, I would think. But I'm only going from guesswork because I haven't actually tried digitizing cassettes with Reaper at this point. I just don't have any cassettes to digitize right now. One of the many advantages of Reaper is that it comes with a range of stock plugins that are highly effective. So you'd probably want to apply a bit of equalization there. And when you have it sounding as good as you feel it can sound, apply some noise reduction just to remove some of the hiss and you should be in fairly good shape. So those are some initial thoughts. Also, a good old Google search may work for you. I imagine this is a fairly common task that people are trying to complete. So you may be able to get information just by doing a Google search. A lot of these things are not necessarily blindness specific. And of course, the Mosin at Large community may have some thoughts. So if you've done some digitizing of cassettes with Reaper and you'd like to chime in, feel free. 1-864-60-MOSIN is the number in the United States. That's 864-606-6736. You can, of course, call that from anywhere in the world. Just be aware that charges may apply. Or you can drop me an email with an audio attachment or written jonathan at mushroomfm.com. Let's get back to Castro, though, because Jason Stradone is in with a review of Castro from an Overcast user's perspective. And I, too, am a former Overcast user before I came to Castro. He says, hello, Jonathan. Glad to have you back for the start of a new decade. I thought I would give my thoughts on using Castro from the standpoint of a long-term Overcast user. I have been a paid user of Overcast for several years and pretty happy with the product. After listening to your podcast on Castro, I thought I would give it a try. I think the thing I like the most about the app is the UI, meaning the small things like showing the time remaining in a show instead of the total time. I also appreciate not having to go into another sub-menu for some settings, such as speed and timer. Also, the way they implemented VO support for sorting the order shows appear in the queue is pretty nice. I currently subscribe to a number of paid podcasts that require a user ID and password to authenticate. I am unable to subscribe to any of those shows in Castro. This covers at least eight different shows a week that I am unable to use Castro for. After checking with the two networks that provide the feeds, they both determined that Castro doesn't support password-protected files-only feeds. I'm not exactly sure the difference, but in Overcast, you can enter a feed and then in a separate screen, enter user ID and password if needed. This appears to be the important difference between being able to subscribe to those feeds in Overcast and unable to do so in Castro. For the most part, when I am at home, I use AirPlay to listen to my podcasts to pick up from what I had been listening to while out on my phone. I find that Castro's implementation of AirPlay is pretty problematic. Often, I will start playing to my speakers from Castro, and it can take minutes before any audio is heard, even though you can see the time counter is moving. Also, while listening, I will get audio dropping out for up to 30 seconds before it kicks in again. I never had these issues with Overcast, and I am not sure what the difference would be in the AirPlay between the two products. These issues are pretty disappointing, considering the promise that Castro has just looking at the interface and the work they have put in to voiceover. I did pay for a year of Castro, but because of these pretty severe issues, 
I think I will have to return to using Overcast full-time. I hope these problems will be addressed, but I'm not sure I can continue to use the app until then. Thanks, Jason. I'm happy to respond to those two specific points. First, I subscribe to several feeds in Castro that use a username and password. And it's really easy to work out how to do this. You can just type into Google something like using Castro with password protected feeds and a support knowledge base article comes right up from Castro that shows you the convention. It's a pretty easy convention. You go to the Discover tab where the search field is and you type in the URL in the form HTTP or yeah, HTTPS colon slash slash username colon password at and then the URL of the podcast and that will subscribe you to that podcast. That AirPlay one is really mysterious, and I would encourage you to contact the excellent tech support folks at Castro about this one, because I use AirPlay every day with Castro, and I have not seen this at all. And I'm surprised in a way that Castro has anything to do with it, because I would have thought that AirPlay is kind of an iOS system-level service. So you'd sort of think, if it works with one, it should work with them all, But I don't know for sure, so uh, it would be good to get in touch and let them know that. But I can tell you I have a Sonos port, for example, which I use every day to get podcasts from Castro um, through AirPlay, and it's never done that for me, which doesn't help you at all. I appreciate that. But I guess there is some hope that there might be some sort of resolution there. Be the first to know what's coming in the next episode of Mosin at Large. Opt in to the Mosin media list and receive a brief email on what's coming so you can get your contribution in ahead of the show. You can stop receiving emails anytime. To join, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at M-O-S-E-N dot Stay in the know with Mosin at Large. Mosin at Large Podcast. Kevin Chow is back. He says, hi, Jonathan. Hoping you're enjoying your well-deserved, restful and recharging summer holiday. Mate, it seems like a long time ago now. <laughs> in the last Mosin at Large podcast, you put a call out for reviews of AirPods Max from a blindness perspective. For those who are in my close circle, I'm known as the headphones king. I have a bin full of wireless headphones, including, and there's an HTML list here and everything, and it starts off with headphones, Steel Series, Arctis One, Razer Opus, Bose Quiet Comfort 35 II, Bose Noise Cancelling 700, and AirPods Max. Then next in the list, Earbuds, AirPods 2, AirPods Pro, Sony WF-1000XM3, Bose Quiet Comfort Noise Cancelling Earbuds, and then next on the list, other Aftershocks Air Bose Frames, and the HTML list ends. Kevin, you are officially the Amelda Marcos of headphones, and you may be young enough not to know who she is. Look up Imelda Marcos and find out what she collected. Actually, she's not that unusual. <laughs> I better be careful where I go with that. Anyway, she, he says, these are at least the ones that I remember or find worthwhile. I am not even going to pretend to justify my headphone collection on the apocalypse and work from home. There you go. A lot of people are blaming COVID for all sorts of things, but not Kevin. He says, I had most of these from the before time and picked up a few this year to finally hit euphoria. Mate, 
My desire has been to remove all friction and frustration from the audio experience, making for high fidelity, near-zero latency, and where I don't feel they're on my head, immersive audio AR. When I read that AirPods Max were out, I ran out to my wife, showed her, said, you're not going to believe what came out, and I don't want them. My wife pre-ordered them in sky blue before I knew it, but I didn't want to wait 12 to 14 weeks until March, so stood in line and had AirPod Max sky blue in hand in just over five minutes, and it took longer to get them out of the box than it did for them to connect to my iPhone 12 Pro, and then it was also available to my M1 MacBook Air. Over the past couple of weeks, I have been able to really test them, push them to their limits, and fully understand and appreciate the AirPods Max. Since 15 days ago, I have disconnected my Shure MV88 Plus or Apogee Mic, that might be MIC Plus, and 12 South Airfly Pro that appeared to boast noise-canceling 700. I did get these for video conferences, WebEx, Teams, Zoom Meet, due to previously experiencing unreliable connections, resulting in it not connecting, dead battery, voiceover lagging, audio fading, and not to mention the multiple things that needed to be set. AirPods Max microphone quality in video conferences and recordings sounds on the same level as M2 dedicated microphones. The audio quality with voiceover and conferences is immersive. Latency is a non-issue with voiceover, even while multitasking during meetings, and they are extremely comfortable to where I don't even feel like I have anything on my head. Using AirPods Max in video conferences and with voiceover feels like an engaging, immersive and seamless audio AI experience. It's a true dream euphoria and delightful, pleasant experience for a blind person. I did order and get the Lightning to 3.5mm audio cable, which I used once to test and found out I don't need it because the wireless connectivity is spectacular and amazing. On Christmas, I saw that Waterfield Designs, makers of great quality cases for Apple products, announced for pre-orders Best AirPods Max Shield Case, which I have on my way in blue. Good on you, Kevin. Now you'll be able to sell all of those other devices to help pay for the extraordinarily high price of the AirPods Max. But I'm glad you're happy with them. And uh, if you are using AirPods Max and you'd like to share your thoughts, please feel free to do so. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com on the email. Write it down, attach a voice clip, or call the listener line 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736. Related to this topic, Amy Rule writes in and says, Hi, Jonathan, I have just found out that I need hearing aids. Do you know if hearing aids will work with the new AirPods Max headphones? Thanks, Amy. And that's quite an adjustment. So I wish you all the very best. Do make sure that you have an audiologist who is going to give you the very best you can get. First, in terms of choosing the correct hearing aids for your needs that sound right to you and then configuring them, tweaking them 
Good hearing aids do take a lot of tweaking, especially for blind people who have quite complex needs and we rely on our hearing. To answer your question, hearing aids and headphones, it's a real mixed bag. I would think that the AirPods Max would be a good choice for some hearing aid wearers because you don't obviously stick these in your ears. They're over-the-ear headphones. They have cups, and that should mean that you can wear them quite comfortably while you also have hearing aids on. One of the problems you will face is feedback. This is pretty common for people trying to make hearing aids and headphones coexist. If your hearing loss isn't too bad, you may find it easier just when you're chilling and enjoying music to take the hearing aids out. And with a little bit of equalization, perhaps on your phone that you're using it with, you may find it quite comfortable to do that. If you need the hearing aids in when you're listening to headphones, then you might need to do some adjustments. One thing that I find does help a lot is if your hearing aids have a telecoil option, so you can listen to hearing loops that you often find in public facilities, and it can also help with using standard landline phones as well to have the telecoil option, then switching to that can turn the microphones off depending on how the hearing aids are configured, and then you won't get the feedback and you'll get fairly reasonable sound. I know there are some headphones that are designed specifically for hearing aid wearers. So if anybody's tried AirPods Max with hearing aids, let us know how it's working out for you and any tricks that you can share, and it will vary a lot depending on your hearing loss, how much you have to crank up the hearing aids, various factors like that, and the type of aids that you have. What I did when I bought a really good pair of studio headphones a couple of years ago when I changed hearing aids, was just went into a hi-fi store that sells really good quality headphones and auditioned several pairs to find out what worked really well with my particular hearing aids, what sounded natural, and what didn't feed back too much. Janine Stanley writes, Hi Jonathan, loved the show featuring Seeing AI. I was one of the beta testers of that app, and it holds pride of place on my home screen to this day. One item I do wish apps like this would call out when doing object identification is the toilet. Yes, I know it's a whisper toilet, but it's usually the thing we need to find most in the bathroom. I haven't thus far found that Seeing AI or Super LiDAR identifies this crucial feature. And yes, I have written to the good people at Microsoft with this suggestion. I've noticed when using the Seeing AI world feature that sometimes reflections are identified as people. It's possible that the person it identified in your main room was your reflection on the TV screen. I had a screen curtain on for my MacBook and it saw me reflected in the screen. Yikes, says Janine. Yes, thank you, Janine. Robin Christofferson also made the same suggestion. So you must both be right. And couldn't agree more with you regarding your toilet comments. That would be such a useful thing to have these sorts of apps recognize. One of the things that has always amused me in all the time that I have worked closely with Americans is how shy Americans are to say the word toilet. Here in New Zealand, and to the best of my knowledge in other English-speaking countries, Australia, the UK, I don't know about Canada, actually, to be fair. Perhaps they've inherited this from America. I'm not sure. But if you want to go to the toilet, you just ask where the toilet is. But in America, if you just say, where's the toilet? People think you're, you're, you're crass or something. And so you have to say bathroom, even though if you're in a public space, 
like a convention center or an office building or something like that. There is no bath in this toilet. There's no bath. There's a toilet, and if it's a men's, obviously it's a urinal. Can you say urinal on a podcast? I don't know. (laughs) And there's obviously a wash basin and something to dry your hands and stuff. Is there a bath anywhere? No, there is not. So I have no idea why it's considered polite to say in the United States, where is the bathroom when they have no bath in the room? It flummoxes me. Now she says, for the professional question, how did you do your walk around recording? Curious about what equipment you used. Of course, it sounded great. And you mentioned a backpack of equipment, inquiring minds, dot, 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 keep up the fun podcasts. And it signed your faithful audio production students. <laughs> Thanks very much, Janine. Great to hear from you. Yes, it was important to do this right. I knew that I had to give a stereo spectrum and I didn't just want to wave the camera around the studio. I thought that was really quite a boring option. So I wanted to walk around and show the variety of things that Seeing AI was recognizing in this LiDAR channel. What I did in the end was I bought a cable that has two XLR connectors at one end and a 3.5 millimeter jack at the other. And of course, I had to use the Lightning to 3.5 adapter on my iPhone and then ran that cable into two XLR inputs on my Zoom F6. Those two XLR inputs were linked as stereo channels. Then I had a lavalier microphone, a condenser mic, plugged into another input in the Zoom F6. So you can imagine the Zoom F6 is getting pretty busy right now. It has three cables coming out of its inputs And I had to also hold the iPhone out in front of me. So I got a backpack and I put the Zoom F6 in the backpack, carefully making sure that the cables were placed in a way that when I was walking around, I didn't trip over all the wires and get myself highly entangled. And in fact, when I finished doing that recording, getting myself decoupled from it all was quite the experience. But I was really pleased with how it came out because I knew that if we were going to do an effective recording, We really had to make sure that listeners were immersed in it and that if they were wearing headphones, we got the stereo sound as we walked around. So that's how we did it. I really do get a lot of mileage out of that Zoom F6. On last week's Mosin at Large and in the Mosin Explosion over the week, we've been talking about Larry King, sadly now the late but still great Larry King. And David Goldfield writes in, he says, Jonathan, I was very glad to hear you and Bonnie discussing your memories of Larry King, who passed away last Saturday. I am a fan of Larry King, as I listened to his radio show quite regularly as a teenager, and he was definitely one of my favorite radio personalities. I published an article to my blog containing my memories of Larry, including one where I was able to have a private one-on-one conversation with him by phone when I was probably around 15 or 16 years old. I highly recommend, this is me talking now, I highly recommend that you read this article if you are a Larry King fan. You can go to David's blog. It's davidgoldfield, all joined together, dot wordpress dot com. That's davidgoldfield.wordpress.com. And you'll find the article on Larry King, which was published recently. But I will read this section of it because it's a great story. Sometime in the mid-1980s, I had a brief conversation with Larry King on the phone. It was not a call to any of his live shows, however. Larry was scheduled to broadcast one of his live shows remotely from a local hotel in the Philly area 
I wanted so badly to see him live, but I concluded that there was no way that my dad would have been willing to drive to the hotel to be a part of an audience for a talk show that was scheduled to begin at midnight. To be fair to my dad, I never actually asked if he might be willing to do it. In fact, upon reflecting on all of this, I really think he might have been willing to do it, as he also knew who Larry King was, and he might have actually enjoyed having a father and son trip to see the Larry King show. It is regrettable that I did not think to even ask him. However, I did the next best thing. Since I remembered the name of the hotel Larry would be broadcasting from, I assumed that he would be staying there. As it turns out, my assumption was correct. As we had no internet, I called the local directory assistance number and asked the operator if he could look up the telephone number for that particular hotel, whose name now escapes me. The operator found the number and I was now armed and ready to talk with my radio talk show hero. I called the hotel and an actual human being answered the phone. This was before the days when all companies used automated attendance and IVR systems. As calmly and professionally as I could, I asked, Would you connect me to Larry King's room, please? One moment, she replied. She asked no follow-up questions such as, Is Mr. King expecting you? Or, Who may I say is calling? My answers to such questions could have possibly derailed my plan. But she asked no such questions. She just put me on hold, and 20 seconds later, Larry King himself answered the phone. Honest to goodness, it was that easy. I wish I remembered more of that brief conversation that I had with Larry. In fact, I wished I had thought ahead and recorded it. Sadly, I did not. You'll just have to take my word for it that what I'm writing really happened because it did. I asked if he was busy, and in a somewhat gruff voice he said, I'm eating my dinner. Another kid might have been deterred or felt intimidated and might have apologized and then promptly hung up the phone. Not me. I was finally on the phone talking with one of my radio superheroes, and there was no way I was going to terminate the conversation that easily. Fortunately, even though his dinner was rudely interrupted by a starstruck, nerdy kid who didn't even have the decency to even make an appointment, Larry indulged me for what was probably a five-minute interview, with Larry being the one being interviewed for a change. He did ask why I couldn't come to see the show, and I explained that I didn't think I'd be able to get a ride to the hotel, which he seemed to understand. I can't remember most of what I asked him except for why he named his daughter Chaya. I was born Jewish, and I knew that Chaya was a Hebrew name, and one which certainly was not a common one in the United States. He was gracious and allowed me to ask him a few questions, after which I ended the conversation. That is an event in my life which I will never forget. What an amazing story, David. And you never forget a kindness like that, do you? And someone that you really admire takes time for you like that. And you're also courteous and you ask them good questions and all that kind of thing. It can be just an amazing, transformative experience. And I think Larry would have agreed that it took some, as he might say, chutzpah to do that. So thank you for sharing that. David has set up an email list for Larry King Discussion. 
He's particularly interested in sharing where sharing is permitted, recordings of the old Larry King radio shows or any old Larry King radio shows, because, of course, he went back to the 1950s with his radio career and his famous show on Mutual began in 1978. Sadly, there wasn't really a lot of ways for us to hear that, although I do believe, as well as going to the States occasionally and hearing it, that I may have heard it sometimes on the American Forces radio and television service, AFRTS, which broadcast on shortwave. And when propagation was right, you could hear some great stuff from American radio, the different newscasts and um, various programs, Paul Harvey. And I think Larry King may have appeared on there as well. But many people have commented that some of Larry's best work appeared on that mutual show. And I wish I could have heard more of it. Larry has a number of books on Audible. David also says that he has some books, that's Larry, has some books on Bard as well. The book, My Remarkable Journey, a fairly modern autobiography of Larry King, is great because Larry reads it. This is on Audible. And you also hear some family members. Larry had a very colorful life. Uh, He had a son that he didn't know about for over 30 years. You hear that story and many others. And his eight marriages to seven different women. It's, It's just a fascinating book. And I tell you, some of the stories that Larry tells in that autobiography about his childhood just had me splitting my sides with laughter. It is a hilarious, engaging, inspiring book about a legend. So that's called My Remarkable Journey by Larry King. And you can hear him and his family narrating that on Audible. I'm also reading another one at the moment, which is called Anything Goes. And that's more of a narrative about some of the events around the political season from 1988 onwards, including the Lewinsky scandal. And that's a really interesting book as well. If you'd like to subscribe to David Goldfield's email list and perhaps exchange some Larry King audio memorabilia, then the email address to do it is Larry King, all joined together, dash fans, plus subscribe at groups.io. So you'll probably be familiar with groups.io and the convention there. So Larry King, all one word, dash fans, plus subscribe at groups.io. If you'd like to exchange memories and possibly audio. Thanks, David, very much. Like the show? Then why not like it on Facebook too? Get upcoming show announcements, useful links, and a bit of conversation. Head on over now to facebook.com slash Mosin at large. That's facebook.com slash M-O-S-E-N at large to stay connected between episodes. It's time to say hello to Tone Matheson in Norway. Hi, Tone Matheson in Norway. Not sure what's happening with COVID-19 in Norway, but I hope you are staying safe and that you're well. She says, hello, Jonathan. I know you have so much knowledge about iOS and blindness or know people that may be the right ones to ask. How do I, as a blind person, get more resources to be more experienced with taking pictures? Would really love ideas if you have some time to help. Of course, Tone. Lovely to hear from you. One of the things you can do is practice with the phone. You can go into the camera app and make sure that you flick to the viewfinder so that voiceover is telling you often what the camera is seeing. This is a newish feature in iOS. And you can hover your camera above something that you want to photograph, perhaps start with pieces of paper on a desk and become more ambitious. And the viewfinder should tell you what it is seeing. Similarly, with the front-facing camera, you can switch to that and get an idea of how far you have to be away from the camera for voiceover to believe that it's getting a complete picture of you. 
You can also take practice pictures with an app like Seeing AI and have the picture described to you. And you can also use a service like Be My Eyes. Give them a call and have them talk you through what the camera can see at any given moment. If you explain to them, for example, that you want to take a picture of a certain thing, they might be able to give you a feel for how far away you have to be from the object to take the picture. But as a rule, the bigger the object, the further away you have to be so that the camera gets a full view of that object. And conversely, of course, the smaller the object, the closer you need to be. And for those of us who've been around a while, you know, the idea that blind people can take good pictures is quite revolutionary. Judy Dixon has done a couple of books on this subject, and she recently updated her very good Get the Picture book with a new one. It's called Capturing and Sharing the World. Capturing and Sharing the World. And you can find it on the National Braille Press website in a variety of formats. You can go to nbp.org for that and buy the book. I think it's pretty reasonably priced. And Judy has a lot of sage advice on taking pictures. She's excellent with the iPhone camera. nbp.org is where you will find that. But of course, real world experiences would be great on this subject. If you have tried and persisted, failed and then tried again and got good results with your camera taking a variety of pictures, perhaps help tone and other interested listeners out by sharing your experiences. Any tips and tricks that you can pass on, I'm sure many listeners will appreciate it. Tom Reynolds writes, Hi Jonathan, like you, I have a very keen interest in our race to the moon, which started with the first Mercury flight in May of 1961 and ended with Neil Armstrong first setting foot on the moon in July of 1969, which was about six weeks after I graduated from high school. Neil was both deserving and lucky at the time because circumstances put him in the right place at the right time. The decision by Dr. George Lowe to send Apollo 8 to the moon as a lunar orbit mission allowed Neil to be in line to command Apollo 11. The primary and backup crews for Apollo 8 and 9 were swapped. Had this swap not been necessary, the primary crew for Apollo 12 would have been the primary crew for Apollo 11. Thus, Pete Conrad and Alan Bean would have been the first two men to set foot on the moon. The command module pilot for that first mission would have been Dick Gordon instead of Michael Collins. And if we examine history a bit closer, Pete Conrad's partner on the lunar surface should have been Clifton Williams instead of Alan Bean. Unfortunately, Williams died in a T-38 accident a year or so earlier. Michael Collins had been selected by Deke Slayton to be the command module pilot on what became Apollo 8. Because of his back surgery, he was replaced on Apollo 8 by Jim Lovell, who was his backup and was originally scheduled to fly on Apollo 11. So his surgery put him on Apollo 11. Had Collins been able to fly on Apollo 8, the primary crew for Apollo 11 would have been Neil Armstrong, Jim Lovell and Edwin Aldrin. Stephen Carriage writes, Hey Jonathan, which Zoom recorders have you used? How do you navigate the menus? Well, I have used a Zoom H6 and a Zoom F6, which I now own thanks to Gary O'Donoghue's excellent review 
that he did for Mosin at large. You can go back in the archives and hear that. They're both excellent recorders. They make some very good products. Some of them have touchscreens. A lot of them don't. So you just need to be mindful of that when you're making your selection. In terms of navigating the menus, well, some of the Zoom recorders do have support for an app. The F6 does. And you'll hear this if you go back and listen to Gary's review. It doesn't mean that you can navigate every menu item, unfortunately. But it does mean that you can configure the recorder. For example, I've got the inputs set up in a very specific way. I have inputs 1 and 2 set up for a couple of dynamic mics. 3 and 4 are for line in a stereo pair. And 5 and 6 are set up with phantom power. But if ever I need to change that, it's absolutely accessible to change it thanks to pairing the Zoom F6 with Bluetooth on the iPhone and then using the app. But navigating the menus does require the good old cheat sheet system that so many of us used to use before equipment was more accessible. So it's not ideal, but I have in Ulysses a folder called Cheat Sheets, which has a a lot of these things for different devices that I own that are not fully accessible. And I have little lists of tasks like here's how to get it as an SD card reader or here's how to get it as a USB audio interface and on and on it goes. And I just follow the steps. Ideal? No, (laughs) not ideal. But I really haven't found anything of this quality that is fully accessible at this point. Steve Catway is lurking about in Canada. He says, I hadn't heard that word upskilling before. That's interesting. I don't think it's a New Zealandism. In my line of work, we talk about it all the time. He says, maybe that's my problem. I don't want to spend the time to upskill in retirement. I had to do it in my working life. So now just want to do the things I really want to do. Learning to use SPL Remote VT may well be my most recent upskilling experience. And he's putting it in quotes as if he doesn't believe this is a real word. That is so fascinating. I'm intrigued, says Steve. By the conversation of QWERTY versus Braille input with an uppercase B, good man. When work bought me a Packmate in 2006, I had the choice of the QWERTY or Braille keyboard model, as you'll recall. I chose the QWERTY model because I'd been using QWERTY keyboards since I gave up using the classic VersaBraille in 1988 and switched to my first DOS-based computer. It's a no-brainer for me. QWERTY all the way. So if I eventually buy a Braille display, which is looking less and less likely at this point, it will be a Mantis. I trust it's a bit more compact than the Pac-Mate QWERTY was, but we all have to start somewhere. It was a big thing, the Pac-Mate QX, wasn't it? And this is less bulky. It's lighter. That 40-cell display added a lot of weight to the display, and this is light. But also, it just uh, takes less space because you don't have that detaching mechanism. That was a big selling point of the PacMate Braille display, wasn't it? That you could detach the display and use it if you wanted as a voice-only machine, or you could use the display on its own with a PC as well. It's logical, says Steve, that a good-touch typist, which I still am, thankfully, can input text faster on a QWERTY keyboard than on a Braille keyboard, because one only uses a single finger per letter rather than multiple keys between one and five, depending on the desired letter. Hello, Jonathan. First of all, welcome back, and uh, I hope you had a great holiday and that you're all rested and ready to go and all those good things. Uh, I've got a little bit of a tricky situation here. 
I made myself a ringtone and also a, a message tone. They work absolutely brilliantly. I obviously done the whole um, converting it to M4A and then renaming it to uh, M4R, syncing it with iTunes. The ringtone works fabulously. It works. I've set it up. It's 100%. The message tone works in my messaging app. It's fine, but now I would like it to work in my WhatsApp as well. But for some reason, when I go into WhatsApp settings and I go into my uh, tones, I can't seem to find it. It doesn't show up in the list of tones that's available, and I don't know why. Um, I'm wondering if it's got something to do with the ringtone and the, and the message tone itself. You go into the phone settings itself and go into sounds, is it sounds or tones, I can't remember now, whereas the WhatsApp tones you sign, you've got to go into WhatsApp itself and settings. Good to hear from you, Gary. I don't have a solution for your problem, but I can confirm it. I create a lot of my own ringtones and text tones, and having just gone in to check, I can confirm that none of them show up in WhatsApp. So it must be a limitation either of what the operating system is exposing to WhatsApp or perhaps something that WhatsApp is doing itself where it is not letting you choose any custom tones that you have created yourself. In Canada, Douglas Howard writes regarding the Amazon Fire Stick, certain applications require you to type in a four to sometimes seven digit code, which is on the Fire Stick screen. And I know sometimes it requires you to go to a website to type in the password. My question for you is, sometimes the screen reader on the Amazon Fire Stick voice view doesn't always read the characters right off the bat. Do you know of a way around that that could read the characters on my TV screen? I have a 4K Samsung Smart TV. Yes, I've had this experience and it's really easily dealt with. There is a review mode on the Fire TV in Voice View. So put your screen reader into review mode and then you can navigate around the screen. You will find that code and you'll be able to enter it to where it needs to be. This is covered in the review of the Fire TV stick in Mosin at Large. That was episode 90. It's Angela L. Griffith. Whenever I see Americans do this, I always wonder what the middle initial stands for. It's kind of like being back at school where you would try and find out what the teacher's first name was, especially when I was in primary school, which Americans call elementary school. That was hot currency, dude. Finding out what the teacher's first name was, that was like, you, you were really in the know. You, you had something people wanted. Anyway, Angela says, hi, Jonathan. First of all, welcome back from your vacation. You've definitely been missed for the last month. Anyway, I have a couple things. One, any chance you might be persuaded to do a demo on how to get the Philips Smart light bulbs you own up and running? Yes, I'd be happy to do that, Angela. I'd have to refresh my memory about how we did it because it was three years ago, I think at least now, and they just have stayed running. We've never had to replace a bulb, anything like that. So I will add that to my list. Second, how do you configure the Amazon Echoes to provide that audible feedback after summoning it with the wake word? Angela, you have to do this on a device-by-device -device basis. You can do it via the Soup Drinker app for iOS and Android, or you can do it on the website for the Amazon Echo. What you do in either case is go into the app, the website, whatever, and find the devices section. Then choose the device 
for which you want the sound to be heard, and you'll find a series of options under Sounds, which will determine whether you hear a sound whenever you say the wake word. You can also have a sound when the Amazon Echo stops listening, which I don't have on, but I notice that many people do. I don't really know why they do, what comfort they take from hearing that sound when the Echo stops listening, because you know it stopped listening when it starts to talk back to you. But that option is there. As I say, you've got to do this for every Amazon Echo device that you have in your home and anything that has Soup Dringer built in. So we have our TV, we have our Sonos soundbar and various other Sonos devices, and you have to go in and configure each device to do this. Good luck. On Twitter, follow Mosin at Large for information about the podcast, the latest tech news, and links to things we talk about on the podcast. That's Mosin at Large, all one word, on Twitter. Here is... Someone who I learn a great deal from each and every day, each and every week. It's Bonnie Mosin. Bonnie here. Hi, guys. Bonnie, oh, no, not that again. <laughs> now, what I learned this week was girls go to Mars to, to get, get the, the can- chocolate bar, the oh, candy, candy bars, bars yeah. and boys go to Jupiter to get, to more, get more stupider, <laughs> which is ironic that the girls would chant that nonsense because more stupider is such bad grammar. You sort of wonder who the stupid one is. Yeah, is well, this was seven. Did, 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 nah. Were they skipping when they would sing the chant this? Or sometimes, but I think sometimes we just chanted it. Girls go to Mars get, when you're running. You can imagine somebody with a skipping rope skipping to that. Yeah, a lot of them come from jump rope songs. But a lot of times we would we used to chase each other all around the playground. So the boys and the girls would chase each other, and then we'd play army. And which was kind of interesting because the girls would play army with the boys and we would have wars. And so yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Wow. So that was on, that was what we did at recess. We'd chase each other. And, yeah. And then somewhere along the line, the hormones kick in. Yeah. And then you start hating one another. Well, I think I'm not sure if we disliked each other or not. I remember being four and five and the boys didn't like the girls. Oh yeah, but then eventually it all changes, and yeah. they can't get either. everybody goes boy crazy, girl yeah. crazy. All the trouble starts. The parents go yeah. gray haired, yeah. you know. Because I remember there was this kid when we went to Florida every year named Chucky, and he he didn't like girls. He'd go away, you know, mm. and he'd ride around on Lies. this Tonka camper thing. It looked like a Winnebago, and you could ride it. And he'd ride around, go away, and then like the next year. He wanted to play, you know, yes, play sandcastles yes. and, mm. you know, and I remember having to go back to my room because I wanted to watch, go back to our apartment because I wanted to watch something. Don't go. So, you know, it was oh, kind of, my word. Yeah. Well, the one I remember that they used to chance was a bizarre little thing. And, and ki- kids were really good at sort of chanting in a particular way. Like, do you, I don't know whether you had this in the States, but whenever the teacher would say good morning. The kids would always go, good morning, Miss, you know, in a very slow. Yeah, I've seen it on TV. I don't think we did that in our class. Wow. Yeah. But anyway, so kids have a certain way of chanting things. And the one that stuck in my head all these years later was this sort of skipping rope thing where they would start chanting, the cow kicked Fred in the head and the bum, the dot. Said it would do no harm. So we all kicked Fred in the head and the bum. And then they'd go, next verse, 
same as the, the first, first yeah. a little, little bit, bit louder and a little, little bit worse, worse. yeah so you got that one no. yeah there was one we had i think i can't i think that was the one about the worms maybe the worms crawl in the worms second verse same as the first a little bit yeah mm. oh, there's a lot of those strange the things you think about anyway there's these are one the that, that we... i can't complete remember the words i'm gonna have to look it up it was another one of the, a lot of them are clapping songs where you'd either clap your hands yeah or clap with another person yeah and i need to look it up because it's something about kissing john lennon so i need what? to <laughs> so... oh. <laughs> i need to look it up well on that note people have been talking people have been talking and regarding this brow display stuff in ios 14.4, Peggy Kern says, I didn't think that my Bradient BI-14 was affected by the bug, but I just turned it on, then unlocked my iPhone, and no Braille. Oh Turning VO and on with Siri brought it back. Oh, so, so that's good. Now, also, we've been talking about learning the Mac, and you've yes, been talking about learning the, the Mac, Mac. and... Uh, Christopher Duffley reminds us that sometimes we overlook the obvious, and he says that Apple has a full user guide for Mac users. Just press VO shift slash. He's correct. So there is there is a wealth of information out there. Um, I you can also do this from the help menu. That's right, VOH. So that's that's right, and it's it's a shame people have been observing. That they don't do this for iOS as well. Yeah, yeah user guide that would be nice. Yeah. How are you getting on with your Mac a week? Good. Um, really, really enjoyed the class. I, I really did enjoy working with the tech juggernauts, Cliff and Matt, you and all the other guys, all the other girls, actually. Stephanie really enjoyed it. It was my very, very first foray into the virtual classroom. It's amazing that you've survived that long without... Oh, and I did another thing because I went to an equine uh, clinic, three-day right. equine clinic. So it was interesting. I did learn a lot. Um, need to practice because that's what you have to do. Yep. And going well, to – Maybe I should just lock your HP Spectre away and mm-hmm. then you'll have no choice but to use them. Well, I you wouldn't been... be able to broadcast no, I wouldn't be able to do the show, yeah. No. I have been. Honestly, though, I thing. have noticed that I do a lot of my emailing on the Mac and the phone now. I need to get Ulysses straightened out. And I would like to learn more about Safari because Safari is a bit nibbly <laughs> on the Mac a bit. Um, and it's probably just getting used to it. But I have been doing email and stuff like that on the Mac. I tend to forget, and I should make myself a cheat sheet in the Mantis. I tend to forget little steps. Like, how do I get to the top of the mailbox? Hmm. I forget that. You know, it's a simple command. I think it's what, VO left arrow? Uh, you, well, well, if you're interacting with the with the table, you'd probably do a VO home, which would be VO function left arrow. Oh, that's it. probably what I'm doing wrong. I'm for, see, I forget that little thing. Yeah, and then opening up a thread so I can see all the messages. That's another one I forget right, how to right. do. So it's little things that I tend to forget. Yeah. Uh, and the same with Jaws, I forget little because marking the page you know the block text and that sort of stuff but um yeah i really enjoy it it's great and i don't know this this is a pandemic thing a product of the pandemic but it's so good i i can't say enough about the acb community events that i've been some of my i've attended some of my just get the email every day and look at 
and they're all really great stuff. And I think it's just been such a godsend to, for people who are very isolated, mm. um, to bring people together and to teach too, because there are exercise classes, there's crafting classes. I've went to a conversation, I guess would be the best thing on congenital blindness. I am not congenitally blind, but in my profession, I think it's important to know that there are differences in working with people who have lost their vision at varying stages of life, whether it be from birth, shortly after birth, or when you're 70 years old, there's differences. And there are some differences between people who are congenitally blind and people who are advantageously blind. And it was interesting. And I went on on that just as a from a professional level to learn what I could learn. Zoom also now has a portal that you can go to where people have advertised various oh, really? courses and things that you can take on Zoom. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and the things that they list there are amazing. There are just so many little courses and get-togethers oh, that you cool. can go on there. And they're obviously not uh, blindness-specific. Yeah. There's a wide range of things. Have to go uh, and it's great. And I hope that we never go fully back, you know, yeah. uh, because it's uh, it's a great way to learn and interact with people. And I, I think the disability community has benefited from a greater oh, humongously, awareness humongously. of, of uh, doing they things have, online. They have um, ACB and probably other things do too. They have like a breakfast bunch in the morning where people just get together wherever they are and have coffee or tea or whatever. And just it's, it's connecting. But, you know, with people. this is another example of where the blind community led the way. And you see so many technological examples of this over the years, whether it be the LP record for talking books or the Kurzweil reading machine that metamorphosized into scanners. We had those voice chat portals mm -hmm. a long time ago, mm -hmm. you know, um, audio tips that George Byers set up and for the people and, you know, those things, they, they were around a long time ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we, we rock. And it's, it's L good. Literally. Sometimes. Literally. <laughs> and it's good to see it as long as it's well run because it can get, and maybe it does if you're just sitting around a table too. When you're in a Zoom room, everybody's talking at once and, you know, it can get a bit overwhelming. And they're pretty good. I think ACB actually has some kind of training where they're training people to be Zoom communicators, which is good because you sometimes have to kind of like a teacher gets, okay, everybody shut up. You know, I'm going to mute everyone now, which yeah. is good because sometimes it does get a little overwhelming. Now, good. yesterday we went with Richard and Nadia, Richard and uh, my son Richard and Nadia, his partner, because they've been recommending this restaurant to us for a long, long time. It was mm -hmm. their favorite place. It's called the Monsoon Poon. Would they describe it as Asian fusion? Asian fusion. Oh, so my we goodness. had a little bit of India. We had a little I had bit of Thai. I this thing called the Wok Lobster, yeah, which, of course, had a little bit of Chinese, a little bit of Vietnamese. Yeah, so it was really nice. Japanese, though. It's and Richard's Japanese. going to be on Mosin at Large soon. Yeah. So that's cool. exciting. He's going to be on Mosin at Large. But, you know, it's so – you never know when this is going to happen to you, and I think that's what makes it even more insidious. You're just having a good night out with family, in our case, or friends or whatever, and it's time to get in an Uber. In our case, this Uber was taking us home. And what do you know – you get the bloody guide dog refusal mm -hmm. issue. It is just so frustrating. And I have to say, here in this part of the world anyway, it happens a lot more with Uber than it does with taxis. I'm not saying it never happens with taxis, 
but it happens a lot more with Uber. Yeah, they've gotten and a lot of training with the taxis, I think. And what I was interesting was in this Uber. case, he couldn't drive away. Because, well, just as well he didn't drive away because I had opened the car door and put my head in mm-hmm. the car. And yeah. at that point, he said, I'm not taking the dog. And I patiently said to him, uh, it's a service dog. It's a guide dog. By law, you have to take the dog. And he said, well, I'm not taking the dog. And I said, well, if you don't take the dog, here's what's happening. We do have the right to go to the police because you're breaking the law. And I have done that before. But what's most likely to happen is we have to report the refusal to Uber and Uber will deplatform you. That means you won't be able to work as an Uber driver anymore. He said, I don't care. I'm not taking the dog. And I said, well, enjoy your last night as an Uber driver. Mm-hmm. And I closed the door. And, of course, he's been reported and he's going to be deplatformed. And, But, you know, I just am sick of it. And I just don't know what needs to be done in terms of quality control. Know. You know, there They've... needs to be better quality control. We need to have proof that training is taking place when I don't people think come on the platform. Training. I really just – I. When I've queried it, they've told me that they do explain to all their drivers when they're coming on, you know, I guess they give them a welcome pack and the do's and don'ts. But the thing that's complicating it here more now, and I'm sure that this must be the case in other places where there is Uber, but it would be interesting to hear. We never used to have the Uber pet option in New Zealand. And I heard about Uber pet in other markets like the United States. And I thought, oh, boy. I hope we never get that here. And so the drivers can quite understandably opt into Uber Pet or not. Mm-hmm. And so now what we're getting is a lot of people thinking, oh, I don't need to take your dog because I'm not in Uber Pet. The other thing, too, is that Sweetie. Uber mm-hmm. has a feature here. It's in some markets, but not all markets in that, that, that Uber serves called Uber Assist. Yeah. And I use this sometimes, for example, If I'm going somewhere for work and I'm going to a building that I haven't been to before, I will sometimes take Uber Assist and ask the driver if they can at least assist me in to find a particular floor, you know, like push the button on the elevator and then jump out or get me to the front desk or something. And they do, and it's really good. But the mistake there is that a lot of people now think if they haven't opted into Uber Assist – they don't have to take the dog yeah. either. And it takes a lot longer for Uber Assist. Because, yeah, because there are fewer of them. Yeah, I used to take it home from work sometimes, but it would be like 20 minutes, 30 minutes out. And yeah. I just, I can't, I don't want to wait. And that's the dilemma you have is that do you just take a general Uber with the guide dog and risk being refused and it taking longer? Or do yeah. you just take Uber Assist? The thing is also that's really horrible. So I've got a 4.96 rating in my Uber, which I think is pretty good, actually. Mm-hmm. But I notice that if it ever goes down, it goes down after I've been in an Uber with you. Yeah. And so what happens is some people grudgingly know I've got to take the damn dog, mm-hmm. but they rate you one star or whatever as a kind of a punishment yeah. for the fact that they've taken the dog. Yeah. And what's happening in the States, as, they've, as people do, they found unique ways of not taking the dog. They, An Uber driver can refuse somebody that's not wearing a face mask, understandably. Well, they've been not picking up guide dogs and canceling the trip and saying they weren't wearing a face mask yeah. when the person was. So they've kind of advised blind people who have been canceled to 
take selfies of themselves with the mask on. And I think that is just, that's mean. I think someone that does that, I mean, if someone legitimately does not have a face mask on, then that's a totally different thing. But if they're using that to get a, get around the dog thing, and it's happened several times in California, I've heard about. One of the things you have to be careful of, too, is that in certain situations, if they cancel on you, you might not have a record of the driver's yeah, name and registration depending on the way that the cancellation it, has occurred. Disgusting. So what I really recommend that people do is if you go to the bottom of the app once you've called a ride, there's this long spiel that voiceover speaks and one great big unit that gives you the name of the driver, the car they're driving, and its registration number. Now, you may actually think that it's quite annoying that it speaks it in this big long spiel, but there's a big advantage, and that is that you can do a three-finger quadruple tap to copy what voiceover last spoke to the clipboard. And then you've got it. You can paste it into your iOS Notes app or Ulysses or whatever you use. And then you've got a record of it. If they cancel on you in the app, you've still got the registration and the name of the person who did it. But it's a shame we have to at all. Yeah, it's just there's no excuse for it. There really is no if they, I don't know what kind of training they're giving them. I think the important thing is a lot of the drivers are not from here. And they come from countries where the orientation to dogs is quite different. So there are some, if you can talk to them sometimes, if they'll listen, if they don't, you know, you might as well be talking to a wall. And the same with the cab drivers have genuine fears around dogs that they're going to eat them because in their countries, they're wild. They're wild animals. They just, you know, ravage through the streets and kill everything. But the training they're giving, they're probably not letting blind people or actual service dog handlers do it. And mm. a lot of them have had bad experience with service animals. It happens. Um, I've had to, I get taxi drivers all the time that talk about how good my dog is and how not good other dogs they've had are. I haven't heard yeah. about the white dog lately. And they're probably... shedding hair and smelling and, and jumping. Jumping. And, and, and I mean, yeah, it's a huge. It's a right we fought hard for, but, you know, we, we have to exercise that right respect. And I'm so glad yeah. that the airlines in the States have finally said enough. Yes, that is good news. With you know, your pet, your animals. emotional support, quote, pet is not coming on my yeah. plane. Yeah, that Thank is great goodness. news. Yeah. yeah, sanity prevailing at last. Finally, no more pigs and peacocks and dinosaurs and giraffes and hippos and whatever you want to bring on. Good on you, good on you. Lovely. Well, we'll look forward to chatting with you next week. Bye. Goodbye. To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line. It's a U.S. number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin.